Inside a mountain is about walking. It crosses landscapes, explores the imagination, trails along the seashore, and sometimes it strikes out to sea. And this time, it does all four of those things, in the company of a botanical artist who likes to start her day by taking a very, very cold swim. The worst bit about the swimming lark is the getting in, and it's not the getting in for the cold for me, it's walking over the stones. I can't bear it. But I'm now actually in the sea, and it's, um, it's such an addiction. It has become one. This walk inside a mountain takes us to the remote landscape of South Devon. Its swooping hills descend to a coastline nicked by rocky coves and inlets, just perfect for those icy wild swims, if you're not terrified by that kind of thing. Its lanes so narrow that the visitor involuntarily breathes in, are trimmed by hedgerows higher than my head and peppered with wild flowers at this time of year. The walk is with artist and illustrator Anna Koska. Foraging for things to paint and sometimes to eat, she might find a bird's egg, a fallen apple, a patch of wild garlic, a delicate shell or a striped pebble. She captures the bloom of an autumn plum using manganese violet pigment, the blush of an apple in the colour known as Lake Rose. There's cadmium deep red for the pods of a borlotti bean, viridian for the speckled missile thrush egg, the sharp tart green of a broad bean pod in oxide of chromium, the seeds of a fig in Naples yellow and its plump skin in ultramarine violet. Anna is rare as an artist because she works with hand-mixed egg tempera, the ancient method first used by artists more than 2,000 years ago and later loved by Michelangelo and Duccio before oil paints took over. Anna's new book, From Field and Forest, charts her path through the seasons in the form of an illustrated artist's journal. This chapter describes the fruit that she's perhaps painted more than any other. The flavour and texture of a fig, when picked ripe and wearing a scarlet smile, is perhaps the most joyful and shocking food experience I've ever had the pleasure of discovering for myself. It is at once both innocently sweet and unapologetically sensuous. And, of course, you can peel it, cut it up, render it entirely unrecognisable, but a fig will always be a fig. Perhaps the best I can do is capture it on cartridge, using egg tempera. This is a lengthy, involved and age-old medium that requires an egg yolk, ground-coloured powders and a lot of patience. But the resultant artwork will have a lustre and depth that I find utterly beguiling, so it would seem a wholly appropriate medium to use when portraying such a heavenly body. So you won't be surprised to learn that Anna's working day in the studio starts with an egg. It's so lovely painting with egg. It's very different from maybe oil paints or watercolour. And uh, there we go, just rolling the egg yolk around. What I meant to do is just remove just the yolk like that. It's very messy. It's been like preparing for cooking something. Whoops. All right. So I just need my bin now. Gosh, I'm just separating out the egg white from the yolk. Then I'm going to break the sack. Like that. And pour it into this little pot here. 
through just get the egg yolk, not the skin that surrounds it. There we go. Such a lovely colour. There we are. Throw that away and add the same amount of water. There we are. Stir it around with a paintbrush. And that's it. And this egg yolk is amazing. It acts like a glue. So it binds the pigments to the paper or the canvas or whatever you're using. And in doing so, also when it dries, it has the most beautiful, very deep, luscious gloss to it. It's stunning. Stunning. It's the most wonderful medium to use for my kind of illustration, which is predominantly working with food, raw ingredients. And uh, I've moved on from that a little bit and I've digressed to working with um, more sort of naturally history-based um, things like uh, beetles and birds and fish and um, plants, shells, stones, anything I can find basically and appeals to my colour, my colour eye if you like. So having broken your egg yolk into the little jar, mm. added the same amount of water, mm -hmm. how do you then blend the pigments and I'm assuming looking at all these pigments that you've got that you know, this really does go back hundreds and hundreds of years in terms of painting tradition doesn't mm. it? Mm. Ectempera is really a forerunner to oil paints. Botticelli is a perfect example of a painting that's lasted through centuries even though you look at what the ingredients that I'm using they look essentially not stable, quite fragile and surely bound to fade over time and yet you know we can all admire paintings which have been painted in Ectempera. And so it's very appealing for me to pick up something quite historical. I'm self-taught on this because I couldn't find any YouTube videos. <laughs> no one is very keen to sort of, you know, let it out and how they've managed to work it. And there's no books as such. So it's very much a learning by your own mistakes. So I've got a line of, uh, a range of um, jars of powders here. They're powder pigments and originally they would have been metal oxides. And some of them are... Um, infamous for being quite toxic. So whereas I used to lick my paintbrush when I was painting with watercolours and using uh, paints, modern day paints, which are a little less toxic, now I really cannot lick my paintbrush to a fine point. I'd be possibly keeling over within the next half hour, particularly this beautiful one, which is a Naples yellow, stunning. So I'm just going to apply some of that using my egg yolk medium. So I'm literally just gonna dampen off the paintbrush with a little bit of the egg, dip it in, straight in there. It won't leave a deposit of the egg yolk in the, in the, um, in the jar of powder, it literally soaks it all up. And I apply it back in the egg yolk and put it on the palette. And you can see that color, it's really quite rich. It's beautiful, so this is the color that I would use for um, a blackbird's beak. And also the sunrise line that run, runs around his eye. Um, stunning color. So what this egg does is it actually uh, brings out the most luminous quality of every colour that I've got. It is so addictive. It's so much more fun to work with than oils because oils takes forever to dry. Egg tempera doesn't. So just applying it now. It's going to dry really quickly. But the temptation then to paint on top of it is, um, is one you shouldn't lean towards because although it looks like it's drying really quickly, the egg actually needs to set 
So as I mentioned before, the pigment actually sticks to the paper. And once you've done that, you can then apply an entirely different colour at a, whatever sort of opacity you want to go for. Um, and if you just put it on very finely with a sort of translucent quality to it, then you'll see the colours underneath and it's quite, quite stunning, quite stunning. So for painting things like um, feathers or the scales on a fish, they have that sort of translucent quality to them, which it's very difficult to portray with a thick paint like oil paints. I can do it and I love doing it, but this has, it allows it to feel more delicate. It's a more considered approach required, I think, when you're working with egg tempera. And when people come to look at your work, can they then work out what it is? Because I don't know anybody else who's actually working with this medium. I don't think they do. I have to explain it to them so they know what they're looking at. Um, because um, but what, once you explain it and you tilt the artwork, they can see the sheen that you might have explained earlier. And then they can actually see how it sort of lifts that painting to make it feel real. And um, so I, I have some lovely comments from people saying, oh, goodness, you could almost lift it off the paper. And that's not necessarily my skill. That's the medium that's playing tricks. Because essentially the rest of the paper remains dull and your image is just glowing. So it does look three-dimensional. It's quite beautiful. For 20 years, Anna lived with her husband and three children in rural Sussex with beehives, a vegetable garden which looked as big as a football pitch to me, and chickens. Years ago, when she first showed me how to paint in egg tempera, it amused me that whenever she ran out of egg yolk, she simply had to scrabble around in the chicken hutch for extra freshly laid supplies. But she's just moved to South Devon for a new adventure with her family. There are no chickens yet. So the egg came from the fridge. But before going to work in her new studio, she starts her day with that jaw-achingly cold sea swim, a kind of floating walk. It's an irresistible thing. It's become that way for me. It's something I started doing the day we moved down. And I think that's probably the only reason why I can bear the temperatures, because they are pretty cold. I think it's probably about seven and a half, eight degrees today. Um, but that's okay. There's something that happens to my body when I get in the water. And it's not the reflexive lock of my diaphragm from the cold that I focus on. It's, it's that feeling of freedom. Bizarrely enough, when you're in a, it's your essentially dipping into an ice box it could be seen as a prison but it actually it becomes a release you can move you're free to move your arms and legs and that in itself that ability to move so entirely without any weight hindering you um, gives you that element of lifting out of whatever you might have been thinking about or having to concentrate on during the rest of the day. So it's liberating not just for my body but also for my thought process. And that's, that's the element which I think I've become addicted to. That freeing of the mind, not just the body. So the cold almost becomes inconsequential. It's not a factor that I focus on.
at all. It's good. Let's go. Oh, it's lovely. Oh. And there's quite a lot of seaweed today. I think it's because of the stormy weather we've had. It uh, tends to dislodge all the anchor points for the seaweed. And um, just recently I found um, I've been very interested in seaweed, so I'm looking through the stuff that's hanging around me at the moment, around my shoulders. And it's a piece of um, called fanweed. Very, very delicate. Very delicate. There's another one over here. This one, I think that's um, bladderwrack. And it's a new one. It looks like a piece of tissue paper opened out. It's sort of a, a beautiful maroon brown. Very delicate. And I've tried to press these ones, but they, they don't come out well. They stick to the paper. Um, but I am identifying and pressing seaweeds. It's all part of sort of settling in and understanding this new environment, which is obviously so far removed from my previous one, which was landlocked in Sussex. I grew up by the sea and I've always been drawn to it, but I'd far rather be beside it than in it. It's related to memories of a terrifying encounter with a vast oil tanker while sailing a tiny dinghy with my sister at the age of 10. Anna was adamant the swim was perfect. Not sure about that. Afterwards, it was the long haul back up the slate cliff. This area where I'm swimming today has the most beautiful sedimentary slate. And it, if you look down at it, they are catching the light and looking like the contours of an old ordnance survey map. I absolutely love them. In fact, I'm going to put this one in my bag right now. Oh, have you seen up there? Those flowers, those are, let me get this right, they're sea campion. Beautiful, they're like little bells. And I didn't notice them before, so I think it's with this recent sunshine that they've actually managed to bloom. Everything is, seems a bit delayed now because we've had so much rain. Oh, and if you look a bit further up, you can see, you see those yellow flowers there? Those are seeding um, relations to the cabbage, unbelievably. They're part of the brassica family. Um, some people call them sea kale, and um, I think they're edible. I would love to pick some, but I probably will when we go back up the stairs again. So have they been seeded from somebody's domestic vegetable plot? Do you know, I think, I read somewhere that they originally were from a domestic. They've sort of, you know, gone free range. They've escaped, if you like. And um, so they, they do bear that same resemblance. And you can even get leaves which are purple, like the purple tight cabbages you might grow in an old-fashioned garden. You know, there's lovely sort of uh, greeny-purple-tinged leaves of a cabbage. Um, so they still have that element, but they've gone, you know, they've gone wild. You know, they've gone and done their own thing. And so, oh, you've got a green shield bug sitting on your shoulder right now. It's gorgeous. I remember eating one of those in a salad. On purpose? No, because <laughs> he's green. I couldn't <laughs> see him. It was the most revolting taste. Sort of earthy, iron, and such an acid as well. I think they do emit an acid spray when they're threatened, and I got the full brunt of it in my mouth. Just to go back to the cabbage for a minute, mm. you seem very resourceful about foraging for things and picking things, and you've just made us the most 
wonderful picnic. I'm a big fan of picnics. And we had wild garlic pickled buds, which I'd never had before. So yes. how did you do those? It's become a little bit of a tradition now. It's so easy. Before the wild, you've got to obviously find your wild garlic patch. It's not always easy for everybody. And where we used to live, I'd have to cycle seven miles to go and find it and became my little annual moment. Um, but here, amazingly, there's so much growing wild, literally streets of it, people whizzing by in their cars. They are literally whizzing past a supermarket shelf full of free food. And, and obviously, you're going to go somewhere where they're not being blighted by car fumes. And, but there's a lot around, and I've been picking the buds. And you literally just take the bud before the flower's opened. You make um, a pickling uh, liqueur, and you make that with... Uh, white wine vinegar, a little bit of sugar, whatever spices you might use. I use some um, pink peppers, black peppers, a little bit of star anise. Bring it to boiling point and then you put your, literally just put your, your little um, pickle buds, your little buds that you're going to pickle, sorry, in the liqueur, seal it up and leave it for a few weeks, literally two, three weeks. In fact, it gets better the longer you can leave it. We continued our walk and later found a stream running through a copse of trees and bordered by a ragged froth of yet more wild garlic, but flowering now rather than in bud. So obviously we had to pick some of that too. Oh, it's a joy picking wild garlic. And the smell, and my hands are going to smell like this for probably, you know, a good few hours, but oh, to be around so much of it in such abundance is a real thrill when I used to actually have to cycle maybe seven miles to go and find my secret patch. And it makes me laugh now because there's such an abundance of it. It's growing everywhere, all along footpaths, among the trees, winding out like a white lake of flowers. It's all blooming now, but the buds are what I use to pickle. And what will you do with the flowers? Will you scatter them over a salad or put very them in an omelette? So. I, could, I could use them on a salad, put them in an omelette. I also put them in my bread. That's a very nice thing to do. They're more decorative. They, they have flavour themselves, um, which is quite good. But you almost need to cook with the flower heads to bring it out. And what I tend to do is make a um, tempura batter, dip them in and then deep fry them. And they are divine. A little bit of black pepper squeeze of lemon juice and a bit of salt and they are such a treat. Anna's book charts an artist's year, but it also chronicles a family's life. One of the most touching passages is the description of the ritual which has developed between Anna and her mother of sending important cargo by post. A few winters ago, I sent my mother some dried beans. I didn't know whether she'd actually want to grow them or indeed if she'd even have room for them in her busy plot. But during the following spring she sowed them and grew a sprawl of beautiful, splatter-patterned purple pods. And to my surprise, when autumn arrived, so did a little brown envelope, filled to splitting with a new bundle of bolotti beans. And so from these I grew my own tangle and enjoyed some happy, noisy meals with my family. I duly harvested and sent some of these new beans back down to her, and the following year she grew more plants and did the same. This year has been wholly productive in the vegetable garden and the Bolottis have triumphed once more. I've saved and dried a few dozen pods and now, having shelled them all, it's time to send this new generation back down to Mum for next spring. 
The simple relay of sowing, growing, saving and sending. I dearly wish we'd started it way back when, when I realised that growing things were destined to be one of the most pleasurable and enduring pursuits, rather than just something your mother does. It has the ability to buoy me up when I'm flailing and all at sea, and if ever I get a little too smug, it's quick to deliver an earthy slap of reality. The simple and physical hard graft of growing vegetables is perhaps the most honest and direct friendship one can have with the land. It's both humbling and inspiring. And for me, the rewards are beyond those that I bring home to the kitchen. I'm taking these beans back up to the house and will write a note and seal them in a brown envelope. I know I'm being ridiculous, and I'm aware that none of us really will ever have a true grasp of how this world flows. But then this leaves an awful lot of room for a bit of magic. So I'll admit that I've nurtured an undeniably bonkers and perhaps childish hope that if we can keep this going year in, year out, then karma will smile and make sure that we're both here each year to keep the seeds growing. Above all, it's in the walking that the knowledge develops and deepens. And the harder you look, the more you find. Oh, wow. Hang on a second. Oh, look at this. It's so beautiful. It's, this is a, a, a nest that's essentially made of it's very finely woven grass, dead leaves, moss. And uh, I would say it's sort of globe shaped. And inside it's fully lined with feathers. They look like pigeon feathers, actually. Do you know which bird's nest it is? I think it's probably a wren nest, and the reason I think that is because it's of the way it's been woven, the, the materials that have been used, but also, most pointedly, the fact that it's lined with feathers the way it is. And it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing. The, the male wren is such a sweetheart and such a keen suitor that what he does is he finds the wren of his dreams and he goes ahead and builds five, maybe six nests in the fond hope that one of them might appeal to her. And... If she takes a shine to one of the nests, what she'll do to indicate that she's actually decided that he's the right one is she'll line it with feathers. And so what I'm looking at right now is a lined little wren nest. So this would have been used to raise a brood, this year's brood. It's very exciting. It's remarkably small. I'm the interior of the nest that's lined with the feathers. Mm. It's not much bigger than a golf ball, really, is it? No, the whole thing I can cup in my hands. Um... It's so delicate though. I mean, look at it. As, as I'm standing here, there are bits of leaves that are becoming unhitched and flying away. And when I say leaves, I'm talking about skeletons of last summer. They're literally just all the flesh is eaten away. So it's light as a feather in itself. Um, it's a beautiful construction. So clever. And when the wren has used the nest, the eggs have hatched. Do they ever return to that nest or is that a, an old home for them now? I'd like to say that they do, but I've, what I've read to date is that they don't ever reuse. There might be other birds that come in and use. I know that house sparrows are very good at reusing and repurposing other birds' nests. In fact, they're so keen to do that, they often will sit and make a nest on top. Literally find even an active nest and build its own nest on top, which is um, a bit bonkers really, but I mean... When you think of all the space we've got, it's like building a flat, really, rather than you know taking advantage of the, of the um, you know detached des res. It's a multi-story car it park is, it for is. the sparrow. Yeah. 
Not only do sparrows stack their nests on top of other birds, having crushed their rivals' eggs first, they'll literally wrench food from other birds' beaks too. But as her book makes clear, Anna Koska loves almost everything about the natural world, but she's not sentimental about it. Today, as I step out of the kitchen door, I'm wearing my husband's dressing gown, my daughter's old wellies, first gently shaken to encourage the exit of any overnight prisoners, beetles, spiders, the occasional wasp. Last night, as the sky flooded with indigo, the song thrush filled his chest and let fly his now regular soliloquy from his leafy perch in the old oak. This morning, however, it's the wren's turn. He usually clears his throat at around 4.30, and by five he's into his stride, melting my heart regardless of the mental fog of tiredness from such an early rise. Down through the field, lifting the hem of the dressing gown, but not quite high enough. The grasses have grown and each spear is loaded with dew. The islands of yellow rattle have spread and shifted from last year's anchorages. They're beginning to bloom, yellow plumes like miniature cockatoos, perched and peering out from the rigging of a mast. Red, striped, white and a shy ramble of suckling clover are now filling in the stubby areas where the grasses haven't quite managed to take hold. These low-lying, colourful pom-poms tend to flourish where the deer like to feed, also happily sprawling their pollocest palette where we've mown a path to the veg plot. Hitching up the dressing gown, I strike out into the ocean of green. It's a little early in the year for the grasshoppers, so there's no one jumping into my boots as I weave my way down through the tall grasses that whisper against thighs and tickle at outstretched palms. I'm running a mental tick list as I tromp, now wet-legged. Yellow archangel, foxes and cubs are very much like this fiery-faced beauty. Common spotted orchid, rough comfrey, bird's foot trefoil, meadow buttercup, soft red spears of young sorrel. Overhead, the quiet air is sliced by the keening cry of a buzzard that for the last 12 years has made this his home and together with his mate has successfully reared a new generation almost every year. She'll be sitting on their clutch right now, though in a thoroughly modern way, these two will share parental duties. A couple of days ago, this buzzard received quite the dressing down from two rather rattled crows. Crows will defend any perceived threat, with apparently little regard for personal safety. But buzzards are unlikely to fight back mid-air, preferring to dip and dodge the airborne assault. So the sweary acrobatics ended as quickly as they began, with the buzzard ducking out and heading back to his nest. The light blue puddles of common field speedwell are still very present, and very welcome. And as I make my way down towards the guard of silver birch that edges the forest, I can see the pale mauve splashes of wood speedwell spilling out from their shady earthen beds. It seems just yesterday that this forest was a carpet of fragrant blue, yet it's now completely engulfed in an ocean of chest-high bracken. And it's humming. The horse flies are back. There are very few creatures on this earth that I struggle to admire, even if I don't like them. Horseflies fall into this category. I'm sure if I searched hard enough, I would find some quality that I could applaud, but I'm pretty certain that the silent, stealthy, weightless bite of a horsefly would overshadow any perceived appreciation of such a relentless and opportunistic diner. I increase my pace, flapping my arms rather uselessly, wishing I had a few more appendages with lasers to zap the flies. 
trotting up through the narrow track banked by sandstone and outcrops of wild and flowering rhododendrons, I reach peak windmill and run through the overgrown glade of yet more bracken to the safety of my studio, slamming the door. And back in the studio, away from the horseflies, there are the jars of pigment lined up and a second book in the series to paint for. There's caput mortuum pigment for the dark pips of apples and pears. Caput mortuum translates as dead head. St John's white powder for the flesh of a fig. And Venetian red for the swollen base of a ripe pear. And of course, there's an egg. In the next episode of Inside a Mountain, I'll be walking with writer and musician Kate Kennedy and talking about Dweller in Shadows, her book on the war poet and composer Ivor Gurney. Traumatised after fighting in the First World War, he was incarcerated in a psychiatric hospital by his family. Despite trying to escape three times, he was never allowed to return to the Gloucestershire countryside which inspired so much of his work, and he died 15 years later. <laughs>